0: We have a couple of, it's like family to us. Their names are Roy and Joy. Some of you met them before, but a couple of years ago, they made a decision to sell their house, sell their car, uh, get rid of all their possessions. In fact, we know that because we have a few of their things in our house and in our garage that they were trying to get rid of. There are a lot of things that nobody wanted and they gave to Goodwill, but they, they, they just kept a filing cabinet, some hobby supplies that Joy likes, and then uh, they packed a couple suitcases full of clothes and that's it. And they decided, for the next chapter of life, they're just going to travel around the world. They're in their 80s, and they spent the last two years visiting relatives, missionaries in the field, um, going on vacation, I mean, just doing a lot of things that they'd never done before because they were so free to do it. And I asked Roy once, uh, not too long ago, how's this experiment going? And Do you miss your things? Do you miss going back to your home? And they said, you know, uh, we we miss very little. But we do have one regret. I said, what is it? He said, we, re- we regret that we did not do this sooner. See, we have, we have grown up in a culture that makes life about the accumulation of stuff. And over the course of our lives, we just keep gathering more and more and more stuff. I mean, think about it. The average employee who makes, say, $30,000 a year from the age 25 to 65, we will have earned over a million dollars. Many of you in this room will earn well over a million dollars, maybe over two million dollars in the course of your life. And if you get to the end of your life, you think, where did that money go? I mean, I, always, I never considered myself a millionaire, but where did all my money go? I say, look around. Look around your house. Look around, the, look around all the stuff you've been accumulating over all this time. See, last week I talked about how, how debt can be a form of bondage in our lives. We cannot do the things that God wants us to do. We can't give generously. We can't help people in need. We can't go on mission trips because we don't have the money. Why? Because we're paying Visa and MasterCard and we've got the loan over here and the loan over there. Debt is a form of bondage, but there's another form that's very subtle. It's the, it's the form of materialism. It's the trap of getting so much stuff. And, and the more you possess the more it possesses you. See, think about it. You always want to have your first house, so you get a house. And when you buy this house, you think, I've got a house, so I've got to insure the house. I've got to fill the house, you know, maybe... Paint, paint some of the walls and put some new flooring in, but then you get your furnishings, uh, your furniture, appliances. You know, you've got to have the stuff that will cook your food and make your ice and wash your dishes. You get all those things in your house, and you've got to be comfortable, so you put a lot of nice things in it. You want things to look good, so you put things on the walls, and every shelf gets filled with something. Every space gets filled, and you start to accumulate all this kind of stuff in your house. And after a while, you run out of space. You're storing stuff in closets, and, and your garage is full. And all these places, nooks and crannies, are full of what? Stuff that you've accumulated over all this period of time. And the fact is, when you have a house, the maintenance of those things, the insurance for those things, the upkeep on all that begins to push you the where you better be making the money to make the payments on the stuff that you have. And so the, the things that we seek to own turn around and begin to own us. And it's a frightening place to be. John Wesley, who was a preacher in England in the 1700s, was speaking to a plantation owner one day. They went on a horse ride over his property. They only saw a fraction of what he owned. At the end of the day, the plantation owner turned to John Wesley with kind of a a smug look and says, well, what do you think? There was a long pause. And Wesley said, I think, I think you're going to have a really hard time letting this go. I think a lot of us are like that that we have stuff that we hold on to and cling, and we're holding so much on to this that we, our hands aren't open to receive the greater things that God wants to give to us. And I want to tell you that from the time we're born, all through our lives, we are, we are being bombarded by a culture that is teaching us things that are contrary to what God teaches us regarding money and possessions. In fact, if you listen to the, the culture Here's what it'll do. It'll actually take you in the opposite direction of what God wants you to go in. It will take you down a path very different from the path that God wants you to go in. And so what I want to do today is take a look at these lies, really, that culture has presented. Contrast them with the truth of God's word. And I want to challenge you to do this. In your own heart, in your own mind, be willing to draw lines. Say, enough! That's enough, I'm not gonna go across this anymore. I bought into too much. This is where it stops, right here. And even today, right here today, it's gonna stop, right in this place. I'm gonna be a different person because of what God wants me to do and be. So here's the first lie as contrasted with God's truth. Culture says it's all mine. God says it's all his. In the time we're little toddlers, we learn words. We learn some good four-letter words like mama and dada, but we start to learn bad four-letter words like mine. I mean, it just kind of naturally flows from a, a toddler who has toys that their sibling wants to play with or that another kid wants to use, maybe some guest over at the house. And with all the energy that they have and all the fierceness of their grip, they will clutch to that toy and they will look with sternness at the other child and say, Mine! Because they believe it's theirs to own. And it's so hard to share what's yours. It's so hard to let other people use things when they're yours. But you know, that's contrary to what Scripture says. Scripture actually says you don't own anything. David writes this in the Psalms. Psalm 24, verse one. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell within. It all belongs to the Lord. The trees, the flowers, the grass, the blue skies, the stars, the mountains, the birds that chirp, the 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 dog you snuggle with, the cat, the bird, the reptile in the aquarium, whatever you have, whatever your pet is, that came from the Lord. The metal that comes from the ground, the rubber that comes from the trees, the wood that we build our homes with, that all comes from God. It all comes from his hand. The water you drink, the air that you breathe. Where'd it come from? It came from God. It's it's, it's all God's. But here's where we struggle with. Okay, I get that. God God owns it all. Yeah, I get that. But obviously, there's some stuff I own because I am a homeowner, so there's some stuff I own. And we have this mentality often, like the guy that that decided to take all his money, his bills and his coins, and said, God, okay, okay, we're gonna settle it this way. I'm gonna throw all my money up into the air and you take whatever's yours, and whatever comes to the ground, that'll be mine. And we we want to barter with God and say, God, show me what's yours and show me what's mine. You know, what's, is, if your part's 10%, take it. But this part's mine. But that's not how it works. God actually is the owner of it all. And he's even the owner of you. Of you. Listen to Psalm, Psalm 100. David writes in the Psalms that God is our maker. It is he who made us, and we are his. Why? Because he made us. He put us on this planet. He designed us, all these intricate organs and systems within us. He made us. We belong to him. Now, I know there's a big debate in our culture that a person has a right to do whatever they want with their own body. If they want to eliminate a life that's growing within them, they have the right. If they want to use this body on someone else, they have a right to do it. But you know what? You do not have that right. Is not your body. We just read, it belongs to who? God. Therefore, we have to ask God, what do you want me to do with this body that you gave? See, Paul ran into this issue with the church in Corinth. There were people that were sleeping with prostitutes. There were people that were gluttons, indulging, gorging on food. And Paul said, hey, wait a minute. In 1 Corinthians chapter six, he says this. Don't you know you were bought... Uh, you are not your own, that you were bought with a price? He says, that body is not yours, it's his. And not only is it his because he made it, it's his because he bought it back. It belongs to him. And so don't don't gorge on the food and destroy this body. Don't give this body over to, to a prostitute. Use this body to glorify God. Why? Because he owns it. He owns it, it is his everything. Just get this. Just be real clear. Everything, including us, everything about us belongs to who? It belongs to God. That's, that's what's so contrary with this view than what we see in Scripture. The issue of ownership is settled. Now, some of you have gotten already a big tax refund. This is kind of a cool year because a lot of people got bigger than, than traditional tax refunds. Um, some of it was because of some credits you received. But the, the bigger part of it is... is, is You withheld more than you were required to pay in. And so what appears like a gift from the government in reality is just you getting your money back. Did you realize that? It's not like, oh, the government's so gracious, they're giving me this money. No, they took the money all through the year from me, and now they're just giving it back. Why? Because we are the owners of that money, really God is, but the government doesn't own that. It's not, it's not giving what's theirs, it's giving me back what's mine. But think about that, because God owns what he gives us. When we give, like in a church offering, we're really returning to God what's rightfully his. It's really his, as Dustin showed in that illustration, it's his. And so the issue of ownership is settled, God is the owner. Well, you say, well, but I earned it. It was my sweat and tears, my overtime that earned it. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Scripture even says, your ability to work comes from God. The gifts you have comes from God. So he owns it. He owns it all. Kind of as a corollary to this is the second uh, contrast we see. Culture calls me a consumer and God calls me a steward. If you look at here, economic terms, we are called consumers. And so we have words like consumer price index and consumer bill of rights, a magazine called Consumer Reports. And a consumer is this, someone who purchases goods and services for personal use. That's a consumer. That's how culture views us. We are consumers. And what does a consumer do? Uses things. We even use that term um, to talk about people who, who use something in their entirety, like My teenage son consumed the whole box of Krispy Kreme donuts. You know, consume, you know, you you devour, you take in. That's the culture's term for us. You know, I looked up that word just to see if it shows up in my Bible anywhere. I've got the English Standard Version. Guess how many times that shows up in the Bible? That many times. We're never called consumers in the Bible. Do you know what we're called? Stewards. You know what a steward is? someone who manages someone else's resources for their purpose. Now, we don't use the word in our culture very often. We don't don't use the word steward, but a very similar word is manager. I am managing someone else's resources, and that's God's term for us. We are stewards or managers, and that's why when Jesus tells uh, many parables on finances, it's like this. You know, man goes away on a journey, gives his possessions to his servants. He, He expects them to protect them, Uh, even expand the impact of those resources so that when he comes back, he'll be pleased in what they've done. And so that's the whole concept. The master has left you with stuff. You are his steward. Now, what's expected of a steward? At the end of one of these parables, Jesus says this, uh, Luke 16... One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You know, a consumer has a goal to be full. Take and take and take until you're full. Consume, consume until you're full. The steward has a goal to be faithful. To be faithful to what's been entrusted to him. And Jesus says, you know, if you can't be trusted with something as worldly as money, why do you think God would entrust you with more valuable, precious things than that? This is just money. This is just wealth. It's not even spiritually that significant. And if you cannot be trusted with that, why why do you trust you with more? See, he says there's a battle going on. Either I will be your master or money will be your master. Either you will serve me or you'll serve money and possessions. And a faithful steward always says, I know who my boss is. I know who's calling the shots. I know who's driving my decisions, and it is the Lord So I am His steward, and my desire is to be faithful in what He's entrusted to me. To not be faithful is really to be idolatrous. If you love your stuff more than you love the Master who gave you that stuff, you become an idolater. And sometimes we just we cross a line. I believe we cross that line to where we really we just really love our house. I really love my motorcycle. I really love my truck. You really love that outfit, really love that purse. And we start to adore, worship the stuff. And Jesus says, you cannot do that. There has to be only one master who you worship in your life, and it's got to be me. And so that's why we have to have this perspective of, hey, this is just stuff, and I'm, I've been given this stuff to take care of for the Lord. For many years, we had rented out one of our, our, our older house. And you know what? I worried more about that house than our own house that we live in. Because at any time of the night, the renters could call up and say, Hey, Darren, uh, the, the evaporative cooler's leaking again. Or the garbage disposal has just gone out. Or the faucet isn't working. Or the refrigerator broke down or something. And you know what? I am responsible to respond quickly. Why? Because I'm the owner. But you know what? That relieves you of a lot of burdens when you're not the owner, when you're just a steward for someone else, when you're just holding on to their stuff. See, it would relieve us of a lot of stress realizing God, you gave it and you could take it away. That's okay, it's your stuff. I'm not gonna get too worried about it. You allowed me to have it and then you allowed it to be taken. That's okay. It's your stuff after all. This really comes in, in well when you think of parenting. You know the kids you have are gifts from God to steward for him? They're not yours to keep. They're not your little projects and toys. They are, it's like God says, here, I'm going to give you these kids to steward for me. And so when they go off to college or leave our home or go off to the, you know, the military, and we say, you know, I can't control their lifestyle anymore. I can't control every decision anymore, what they wear and who they hang out with and where they go on the internet. I say, God, they're your kids now. I've done my part to point them to you. And now I entrust them back to you. It's, it, it relieves you of a lot of stress. It's so beautiful when you consider that as stewards, we don't have to cling to the stuff that we have because God has given it to us. The, the past few weeks, there's an older lady in the first service who she comes up to me. She's done this last three weeks now, did it this morning, and she, uh, she wadded up some money and she stuck it in my hand and she said... Uh, do, do what this as the Lord directs. And uh, last week, she gave me a bill. It was folded up, it was a $20 bill. At the last service, I was speaking to a man who's going on a mission trip, and he was having a fundraising dinner. It was $20 a person. There's no way I could come to that event, but I said, you know what? There's a lady who wants to buy a ticket. And said, this was for you. See, when you're a steward, you begin to ask the question, is this for me or is this for someone else? Are you giving this to me or are you wanting to give this through me? And the steward always asks that because you recognize, I'm just just the go-between between God, his resources, and the people he's trying to bless. So culture says we are consumers. God says we are stewards. Culture says I need more. God says I lack nothing. The whole advertising industry is based on the premise that You need a little bit more. You know, if you just had this product, if you just bought this service, if you just took this medication, you'd be uh, beautiful, you'd be uh, happy, you'd be successful, you would be popular. And so there are a lot of things that in the course of our lives become very kind of cool and trendy. Every year there's certain things that it's the gotta have stuff not just at Christmas time, but all through the year, like everyone else is getting one of these. You know, we've got to get one of these things too. And right now I looked up, what are the hottest things over the past year? Here's some of them. Smartwatches. Subscription meals. Heated vests. That's a vest that's got built in, keeps yourself warm. A robo vacuum. You know, just it just goes around your house, cleans up the stuff. You just watch it and let the cat ride on it. Um, Ancestry kits, finding out who, you know, where you really came from, how how you're not who you think you are, Um, Instapots and pressure cookers, we've got one of those, and they're wonderful, awesome, digital assistants, that's not a secretary with fingers, okay, that's like the echo, you know, that that we just talk and they respond and do stuff for us, Um, athleisure wear, what is that? It's athletic wear that you can also wear leisurely. So it looks good at the gym. It also looks good at Walmart, okay? That's <laughs> athleisure wear. PlayStation Spider-Man bundle. I know everyone got it. No, I, I, somebody got those because they're really hot. Hot games. And then uh, this, one, this one made me laugh because, because there was a, a, a statement about this product saying, tests have not proven that this actually works, but it's been flying off the shelves activated coconut charcoal teeth whitening powder. I don't know if it works, but everybody's getting it. must be good. Have I got some products for you? <laughs> I mean, now, you may have some of those things. That's fine. Some of them are good products. But I want to ask you, would you be willing to ask the question, why am I getting this? Is it because I feel that if I get it, I'll be considered cool? I'll be considered trendy? I'll be in... Everybody is doing it. Is that the motivation? Because if it is, that's a terrible motivation. We, we should be asking God, would this, would this be an honorable thing to do? Would this, be, would this be pleasing to you? Because what happens is we just keep accumulating stuff. Have you heard of the name Marie Kondo? Some, some of you have, and, and you're probably very devoted to her. Marie Kondo is not a housing development. Marie Kondo is a Japanese woman who's an expert in House cleaning, decluttering homes. She has a book. She also is featured on a six-part Netflix series called Tidying Up. And people who've got a house full of stuff invite her to come in, and she helps them go through and declutter their lives because they're so frustrated. and They don't know how to say goodbye to their stuff, and she just makes them get rid of all kinds of stuff. Her principle is basically this. Whatever doesn't bring you joy, say goodbye to. Only hold on to those things that truly... Bring you joy. Now, what's ironic is even with that, there are people who are weeping over letting go of articles of clothing and knickknacks that they think mean so much to them. But if it doesn't bring you joy, she says, let it go. But you know what? By the end, when they've cleaned off their closets and their, and their desk and their living room and all these things, there's a sense of freedom. The sense of like, oh, a burden's been lifted from my life. Because this is scientifically proven to be true. The more clutter in your house, the harder it is to relax. If you have a bedroom full of clutter, your mind constantly looks around at stuff. The simpler the room, the easier it is to sleep because your mind's not constantly moving. You can, you can think more clearly in a decluttered home. Now, I'm one to speak because I like to collect a few things. And, uh, and I'm not going to let my wife come up and uh, share any of those stories, but... When, when I take apart, say, a doorknob, and uh, I realize, you know what? I just hate to throw out a good doorknob. And these screws could be used again somewhere in a project. And so I have boxes and little drawers with all kinds of screws and nuts and bolts and all kinds of um, CRAP in our garage because there's all this stuff everywhere. That I've accumulated. Now every once in a while, I'm looking for like I'm looking for a screw that fits something just right, and I'll open up a door and go, "Yes, I'm glad I saved that one." But that's the rarity. That's the rarity. I was so glad that yesterday, Widefield Community Center had a uh, recycling day, and you could bring old mattresses, old tires, um, cans of paint and cleaners, and so we unloaded at least 25 five-gallon, gallon, gallon quart size cans of paint and stain that we've kept over, really, over the last 20 years. And my, th- my thinking is, hey, that, there's only like that much paint in there, but if we get a nick on the wall, we're going to be looking all over for that can of paint. Well, you know, what? I, I open those cans of paint, and they're like rock solid now anyway. So <laughs> we clean up all kinds of shelving space. Now, here's the danger. We, we get decluttered. Clean shelves, clean closets, and then we go out and buy new stuff to, to <laughs> fill. Don't do that. Don't do that. You, you've, you've drawn the line. This says, no more. I'm not going to be an accumulator of stuff. There's a new uh, trend today um, to be a minimalist. You know what a minimalist is? It's just living on, on basic things. I'm going to be content with basics, and instead of accumulating stuff, I will invest more in relationships and experiences. And I love that. Because in the end, what matters most, you will not take a single thing to heaven. But people do go. People will go to heaven. And so, spend less money investing into things and enjoy life with people, love people, and bless people. And I think it matches up with Scripture because Paul, Paul wrote to Timothy about an attitude that we should have. Godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. David says in Psalm 3410, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. See, God promises to meet our needs. He says with food and clothing you'll be content. I have to add just a couple more things to that. Like a house to live in, a bed to sleep on, maybe. But you know what? Here's where we have a tr- problem drawing a clear line between what is a want and what is a need. Shelter is a want. Uh, excuse me, shelter is a need. A four bedroom house with, a, with two and a half baths and a two car garage is a want. Transportation is a need. A car is a want. There are other forms of transportation than cars. Food is a, a need. A 12-ounce sirloin steak with with all the trimmings, that's a want. See, but here's where you and I have to draw a line and say, what do do I need? See, God sometimes pairs us down to help us realize you really need very little. And if you can find contentment in that, it is great gain. That's why Paul said, you know, I I found the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or want. And here's the secret he learned. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Contentment is a very beautiful thing. And so God promises to, to bless us and to give us and that we would lack nothing. In fact, I think God's more concerned about the, the spiritual, emotional needs and even the physical needs. Consider this, James chapter one. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in what? Nothing. Nothing. God says, I don't want you to lack, but he's not talking about food and clothing here. He's talking about um, spiritual, emotional lack. Do you know that when you go through a difficult time, it very well may be that a loving God says, hey, I need you to prepare you for bigger things in life, and I'm gonna take you through a season of testing here so that in the long run, you don't lack in this area. That's what a loving God does. He wants us to be blessed. Culture says you need more. God says you lack nothing. Culture stirs up fear because of a perception of scarcity. God stirs up faith, recognizing that there is an abundance. Harris Poll says that a fourth, excuse me, two-thirds of Americans worry over the course of a month over their financial issues and one-fourth have extreme concern over financial issues every month. Many of us live paycheck to paycheck. We have no reserve funds that if there were an emergency, there were a crisis, we could not respond to it. And so we live in this sense of fear. And part of that fear is driven by this idea that there's, there's a scarce amount out there. See, the, the mentality of scarcity says that there is a pie and there's only so much pie to go around. And if someone takes a big piece of pie, like a big corporation, that only leaves so much pie left for the rest of everybody else. And that's not fair. An abundance Mentality looks at it differently. Abundance mentality looks at not the pie, but say the air. You take a big breath of air, and none of us say, "Hey, hey, hey. you've had more than your share fair of, of oxygen today." Okay, slow down, brother. Don't breathe so deeply. No, we don't do that. Why? Because there's an abundance of air. It's not a concern. That's how we should view God. God's not a stingy God with limited resources. He's a God of abundance. Now, I know technically there's a limitation to the amount of oxygen that's breathable. I know that. And there's a limit to what God would give us. But the truth is this. It's far more than you and I can imagine. He's a God of abundance. There's there's more than meets the eye. In one of the parables that Jesus tells, the parable of the talents, he gives one man five, one man two, and one man one talents says, I'm going away. When I come back, we'll have a day of accounting. And when he comes back, the man who has five doubled the amount. The man who had two doubled his amount. And his response to both was the same. Oh, you guys did awesome. Come and share in my happiness. I will bless you even more. But the man who had one buried his talent in the ground. And when when the owner came back, he wasn't happy. Now, when I first read that years ago, I thought, you know, I, I don't know why the owner got so upset. What's his issue here? I mean, it's not like the guy squandered it. He didn't lose it. He just, he just buried it. He just, he just pulled it out of the ground, and said, here it is, master. Here's what you gave me. He may not get the gold prize or the bronze prize but, or the silver, but maybe a bronze? You know, he did something kind of good. But the master, if you read the rest of the story, is, is angry with him. In fact, punishes him. And I think it's because of what this servant said to him. It says... He also had received the one talent. Came forward, saying, "Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours." And what's so bad about that? What's bad about that is the offense to the owner. What this man thought of his owner was so offensive. Basically, he was saying, "Like saying this: You are a hard man." You like to have other people work, and you profit off of them. I wasn't going to let you do that to me. You're not fair, and you're someone to be feared. So I buried mine in the ground. What's your view of God? Do you, do you feel when God calls you to, say, give, like in the Sunday morning offering? I don't trust that kind of a God. He's trying to take something from me. He's, he's to be feared. He's trying to take what is mine. Or do you say, oh, that's my That's my owner. He's blessed me. He's given me the privilege to give. What is your perspective? Really, what is your view of God when it comes to letting go of those things? Because if you have a scarcity mentality, you are going to cling to it very tightly and say, I can't let go because I don't know if there'll be any more coming in the future. You know, I, I've met people who have given generously to God. And you know what their perspective is? God gave it. And as soon as I give it out, it's like he, he backfills. And I can't give it out as fast as he's pouring in. It's like I'm, we keep doing this. You can be a, a, a reservoir that holds onto it or you can be a river that lets it pass through. And God wants us to be like the river. There's an abundance with our Lord. In Philippians chapter 4:19, 19, uh, Paul speaks to a, a group of Christians in Philippi who supported him his mission work. And he says, you guys have given generously to me. No other church responded like you. He says, I want to tell you what God will do for you. He says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God is a rich God. He is plenty. And he saw what you did, and he will bless you for that. God is a God of abundance. It says, Psalm 8411, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God wants to give to us, and when we walk with him, he gives generously. Culture says, There's only so much, you better hold on to it. God says, I'm a God of abundance. And the last contrast is culture says, our identity is shaped by what I have. God says, our identity is shaped by what I give. Jesus said, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. I would add to that, your life does not consist in the brand of your possessions either. That's a big issue in our culture. I like the NCAA basketball tournament. It's March Madness, for goodness sake. These kids out there are playing their house out, and they're wearing these great tennis shoes. Now, young men are growing up looking at these tennis shoes, and if you get LeBron James or Stephen Curry or Kyrie Irving's name on that tennis shoe, you, you are somebody special. It's their shoe. But they cost 90 to $130 a pair. But you look cool with your friends if you've got that. You don't want to get a no-name brand, a brand with, with, without a significant signature on it. I mean, it's, a, it's nobody. I mean, we buy a lot of stuff to impress other people. There's a lot of pressure today that if you have that purse, if you have that truck, if you have that phone, you are someone special. And I just want to ask you, who are you trying to please with your purchases? The people around you or your Heavenly Father. See, I think we need to make a shift in our minds. What if instead of we we spent money to look good, we gave money to be good? Again, Paul's telling Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. He says, I made you rich to be good. Now, you'll enjoy things along the way, but be generous with what I've given you. Now, you know, when I, when I read that verse a long time ago, I said, oh, he's talking about the, the millionaires in the culture. That's for the rich in this present age. Until I discovered, do you know that if you make $32,400 a year, that you rank in the top 1% of the richest people in the world? Isn't that amazing? That makes just about everybody in this room... Pretty rich, pretty rich. And yet we said, no, but pastor, I'm not rich compared to the people next to me. I'm not rich compared to the people I work with. I'll never forget the perspective I heard of years ago from a pastor named Bill Boyce. He, He pastored a church down in Phoenix area. And you need to understand, he wrote this back in the 1970s, so some things were culturally relevant back then. He would say it differently today. But he was convicted very much by the story of the rich young ruler. Now, if you remember that story, rich young ruler comes to Jesus, says he's, he wants to follow Jesus. Jesus says, I want you to sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then come follow me. And the man says, can't do that. He turns and walks away. So here's what Bill Boy said. He wrote a prayer. Dear Lord, I've been rereading the record of the rich young ruler and his obviously wrong choice, but it has me thinking no matter how much wealth he had, he could not ride in a car, have any surgery, turn on a light, buy penicillin, hear a pipe organ, watch TV, wash dishes in running water, type a letter, mow a lawn, fly in an airplane, sleep on an inner spring mattress, or talk on the phone. And if he was rich, what am I? What's going to identify you? Will you be a consumer? An owner of things, a possessor of possessions, or a giver? You know what I love about the Lord? I mean, obviously, he's the owner. We worship him. We, we recognize he's owner. But do you know what we love most about God? Is that in spite of the fact he owns everything, he's the most generous giver there's ever been. I mean, that's what we love about God, isn't it? The fact that God gives. For God so loved this world that he gave his one and only son He's a giver, and we love that about God. And we are most like God when we give. That's what God loves most about us. We give like him. There's no greater gift than just to start giving him your heart, your soul, your life. Say, I'm not going to let my possessions be Lord over me. I'm going to surrender myself to you fully. And so I want to give you that opportunity today. I'd like you to stand. Our prayer partners to be available up front here. To give yourself back to the giver of life. The one who entrusted you with everything he's given you. Everything, including your body, your mind, your family, your spouse, your pets, your job, everything. He's gave it all to you. To say, God, I, how can I hold any part of me back from you today? And So today, surrender to him. And maybe for the first time, for some of you, surrender to Jesus. If you're battling in a specific area of your life... Our prayer partners would like to covenant with you and pray over that area that you would surrender to him. He's a good giver. Let's give him what he deserves.